get going into Ezekiel. We on the last session. Oh, oh, fantastic. Someone's going to be disappointed um, uh, about it. Uh, some of you that aren't regularly with us might have seen some of the, uh, the tweets out there week by week. I, I've heard God speak every week through this book, uh, and it's a book that perhaps has been locked or closed uh, to, to many of us. We know, we know little bits of it, little snippets. Ezekiel 37, dry bones. Hey, I know that, but we weren't quite so familiar with uh, the rims high and awesome of chapter 1 or some of the sour grape sayings of chapter 18 and so on and so forth. So I hope you've, uh, you, you've grasped something of what was going on in uh, Ezekiel's time. Big picture, just as we come into land, was that when we meet Ezekiel in chapter 1, things are in a right mess for him personally, let alone the nation of Israel. He's lost everything. It seems to me suddenly to be a really important place for us to start this morning. Some of, uh, of us uh, have, have come this morning with the knowledge that one of our school friends died yesterday. So sometimes life just sucks, doesn't it? Uh, and it's really hard to make sense of the pain that we feel, the anger that we feel, the disorientation and stuff. Uh, and we haven't got clever answers to all of those things. But in Ezekiel chapter 1, we meet someone who'd lost everything. He'd lost even his wife. He'd lost his homeland. He'd lost his job. He'd lost his family. He'd lost the reality of his upbringing. And he lost his wife as well. And he's plonked in this foreign land. And he discovers, even in that place where it was all wrong, where everything had gone catastrophically belly up, that God was able still to be sovereign and work his purpose out. That, that song that, um, that, that Jake asked us to sing, that blasts out in our house, Father, let your kingdom come, something, something, something. Uh, and then there's, there's something about in suffering and pain. What's the next bit? Claire? In suffering and pain, something. He's still our God saves. And, and it's amazingly true. Uh, and I don't know how God can figure out the pain and mess that some of you young people are going through this morning. Uh, only God can reach those parts of our lives that are, that are really hurting and troubled today. But, but I've known God long enough to know that he's able to sort out the biggest of messes and the greatest of pains. And when it looks like everything is lost and it's all over, a bit like a man dying on a cross then resurrection is only just around the corner. How cool is that? And that's what we're coming to believe and coming to understand, that God is sovereign in and through it all. So if you want to catch up on this whole series, um, you can get it uh, uh, there and, uh, and find out about it. And this morning, we're going to wrap it up in Ezekiel 47. But before we say that, I just want you to hang here for a moment. God is sovereign, and there is no situation beyond his reach. Honestly, that's the truth. Uh, and it's sometimes hard for us to hear that, to receive that, to understand that, because our circumstances are going bananas. Our circumstances are saying that it's all lost, it's all over, we're in a right mess. Ezekiel, from chapter 1 right through to 47, tells, and then on to 48, tells this amazing story that God is sovereign and can sort out the greatest of messes. And I've been learning to trust him a little bit more through these last weeks, and I hope you have too, as we've journeyed uh, together. So, we're in chapter 47, and uh, it moves to that place where God has fixed it all up, where God has restored and renewed his people. Ezekiel sees a vision of what one day will be true. 
And as Julie was helping us see last week, last week was fantastic, wasn't it? I wasn't even here, but it blessed the socks off me. Podcast of last week, you must listen if you weren't here, because what we could see is that what God was promising Ezekiel about restoring and renewing his people is a promise that that goes right up until today, and we can see living examples, living stories, living testimonies of God renewing and restoring his people right now. So it's nothing about the Old Testament locked away, but it's everything about a God who is always the same. So if he does that stuff in the Old Testament, he's jolly well going to do it in the New Testament. And if he does that stuff in the New Testament, he's going to do it in his church today. Amen? And so we're thrilled to bits when we see what's true in the Old Testament and what's true in the New Testament, true in 2013 here in our midst, and we're longing for so much more in 2014, which kind of takes us right into chapter 47 where there's this fantastic picture of a restored temple and the life of God in the symbol, in the metaphor of a river flowing out from within the temple. And uh, if you've got the Bible open in front of you, I hope you have, um, the chapter number, if you've got a Bible in the pew, is? 880? 880? Have it open in front of you. There you'll see it's uh, uh, 1 to 12, what Luke read to us, the picture of the, the temple that was smashed, rebuilt, and a river flowing out of the temple. It's a metaphor. It's a symbol. A river could not have flown in that kind of way, in that sort of direction. It's not trying to make some geological point. It's trying to make a spiritual, a, a theological, uh, or even an ecclesiological about the church, about the people of God uh, uh, point. So the uh, God gives Ezekiel a picture of a, of a river, and Ezekiel, being a good Old Testament guy, knew exactly what the river was all about. You see, a river or flowing water was a symbol of the life of God, or if you like, the spirit of God. There are streams, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. It was a river in Eden that gave the garden life. It was a river, it is a river still, at the end in the great picture of Revelation. Again, symbolic of God's life, of God's presence. And uh, we haven't got time to go into all of that detail this morning. But you will know that Jesus also used uh, river and flowing water as a symbol of the life and the Spirit of God. Uh, on the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, the celebration of God's provision for them, the providing of food and water, uh, after seven days of physical feasting and drinking, Jesus talks about another thirst that people have, and he says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit. A picture then of the life of God uh, and so on. So back to Ezekiel 47, we've got a temple with a river flowing out of it and we're asking this question, where does the life of God come from? Where does it begin? And how do I make sure I get in its flow? Where is the river of God begin? And how can I make sure I get in its flow? Because what we have discovered more and more and more and more is the more of God's life that you glimpse and grasp, the more of it you want. 
The more you see and grasp and taste and feel of the life of God, the more you hunger and thirst after it. Like David, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants, longs, yearns for you, my God. So Ezekiel 47, where do we find this life and how do we get immersed in it? Where do we find this life and how do we get immersed in it? Firstly then, the life of God comes from the altar. Notice what Ezekiel sees in his vision. He sees the river coming from the south side, literally from underneath the altar. The altar was the center of the temple. It was where all the sacrifices took place. It was where God uh, gave a plan in order for sins to be forgiven, for people to be restored back to him there in the sacrifices of the temple, which the Bible says were just a sign pointing to one great big sacrifice, which is Jesus. So in that place that was symbolic of the sacrifice of Jesus that would one day take place, the river of God's life begins to flow. If you want to understand where to get this life from God, you have to go to a place outside Jerusalem where Jesus, God's own son, died on a cross to rescue you and me. That's where it all begins. And if as Claire was speaking in the pool, you think to yourself, well, how do I know this God loves me? That's how you know that he loves you. Because he gave his very self. God so loved that he gave his son for us, for you and for me. There is no other place from which the life of God flows. Which is why Paul, the great leader in the New Testament church, would say it's really, really simple. We just preach Christ crucified because it all starts there. How many of you have made it to that cross and seen the wonder of a new life that starts there? Thank you, Chris, for leading the way then. It was a, it was a kind of churchy moment, wasn't it? You know, is, is that a real question or is that, okay, let's go again. How many of you have just, just made it to that place? If you can't stretch your arm for Jesus, right, now let's stand and sing a hymn. No, I'm just kidding. That's funny. See how I did that? Move from one thing to the other. Um, it, it, it's there, in that place, in those moments where God gave him Self, all new life starts there. And so in the end, we don't preach anything else. It's Christ and Him crucified. There's no other story. There's no other rescue. There's no other means to to get ourselves put right with God. It all starts there. But look what happens next. The life of God, secondly, flows out. Here is the temple, the church, the place where the people of God gather, but the life of God doesn't flow in, as we might expect. The life of God flows out, heads outwards. It's not a drag in, but a push out. And that's something we've been learning, haven't we, over the last few years. It's not about the number of people that we get in to get seated. It's about the number of people we get sent to do mission. It's not about the number of people we get seated. It is about the number of people we get sent for God and for his purpose out into the world. To be in the flow of God's spirit, to be immersed in God's life, you and I need 
a momentum out. Uh, And did you notice, if you look a few verses on, that the further out they went, the deeper the river got. The further out, the greater and more powerful and more real the life of God becomes. That's a little bit of a paradox. It's contrary to our natural intuition where we want to gather and look to this place, to these gatherings, as the place where we will greatest or most greatly see and know the life and power of God. Yet this vision that that God gives Ezekiel that's still being worked out through God's people even today says, as you move out, so the life of God gets richer and deeper as you move out. And we know that when we listen to story. If you listen to missionaries and people whose whose presence of God is something we admire, they've often, if not always, been people that have lived out on the edge. The people who speak most powerfully are those who've known God at the front line, at the frontier, out where God is at work. The sanctuary is safe, but the life of God is only a trickle there. Have you noticed that? The sanctuary is safe, but the life of God is only a trickle there. And it demolishes, I think, a couple of mindsets that we have. One is that I want a blessing. Who wants a blessing? Wait, we knew about that, didn't we? Not sure about Jesus and all that stuff, but I'll have the blessing. Who wants a blessing? All of us want a blessing. And so we've lived with the mentality, I'm going to go to the place where I will receive the blessing. So I will go to that meeting where that person is speaking. Or to that place where those people are leading the worship. Or to that event where God seems to show up where he hasn't quite been given a ticket to the other events that happen. And so we can live with this mindset. I'll go to the next thing, the next conference, the next uh, moment, wherever that might be, in order that I might get a blessing. Where is the biggest blessing found in Ezekiel's vision? It wasn't in the sanctuary, but it was at that place where the river became so broad that you couldn't really get across it. All you could do is swim if you can swim and let it wash over you, which challenges the other mindset that goes, I want to be fed. There isn't a church where someone hasn't arrived and said, you know, I'm coming to your church because I want to be fed. People say that to me. We're here because we want to be fed. And, and I kind of understand that at one level. And what we're saying is, if I'm going to really grow in the life of God, then I need more teaching. Or I want deeper teaching. If only I had slightly deeper teaching, then my spiritual life would grow to new heights. I need deeper teaching. I want meat, those of you who know the King James might be tempted to say. I want meat, don't we all, unless you're a vegetarian. Of course, you don't want meat, because meat is bad, but it's actually quite yummy. Um, Mike Pilavachi said a few years ago 
The meat is on the street. The meat is on the street. And you go, whoa, hang on, hang, hang, hang. Really? Is that what he's saying? What you really need, if you want the life of God, the blessing of God to throw, to flow through you in measures that you haven't yet experienced in your life, what you need is not to be taught something you don't yet know, but it is to do something that you already know. What we need to grow is to actually do what we have already been taught rather than to put that off in order to teach ourselves new things that maybe we equally will not do. We need to find the meat that's on the street. If you're ready to tweet, this is a brilliant tweet, and you can pass it off as your own if you like, but I'll catch you. We miss the point if our learning is outpacing our obedience. Julie's going for it. We miss the point if our learning is outpacing our obedience. We will only grow as high or as deep or as wide as our obedience. We will only receive the blessing at the depth to which we obey, not the amount that we learn. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm a Bible person. I've devoted the whole of my life to learning about the Bible. We are committed to teaching and understanding and receiving the revelation of the Bible. This is not about saying we don't need that at all. But if we learn more and more... And if we learn faster than we obey, we will not grow. That's what Jesus said. He said, my food, I want meat. I just want teaching. I just want to go deeper. Give me meat. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's where you will find the food That will enable you to grow. It's why this past couple of years, we have begun to see some amazingly exciting things going on in and around our church community. As I said at the church meeting last week or the week before, I've never been in a church. Never been in a church. And I've been in churches all my life. I've never been in a church where I could look back over the last few months and know people who found faith in Jesus for the first time. And I can look into the future and I can see people in the next weeks and months that certainly will. I've never been in a church like that. Maybe I've just been in all the wrong churches. And the reason God is breaking us into new ground and new ways is not in the end because we've learnt more, but because we have intentionally said we're going to try and obey with greater integrity. And as I listened to that podcast in my kitchen on Friday morning, I wept because God's doing something in our midst, which is absolutely brilliant, because we are learning and I am learning 
to actually do what we spend a lot of time talking and thinking about. And it's in the obedience that we discover a meat, a food, that enables us to grow. You see, in the end of the day, the services aren't any different and the preaching's probably getting a bit worse. But, but we're doing some stuff and it's in the obedience that we're seeing the breakthroughs. In the obedience. Flows out. Which takes us on to the third. The life of God starts with a trickle. Isn't that brilliant? It's brilliant because I can handle a trickle. Because uh, it starts where we are able to start. I love this. Even after a thousand cubits, which is about 500 meters away from the temple, it's only ankle deep. Commentators talk about it trickled forth. It trickled forth. We can all start a trickle. Imagine, what if we started serving coffee to people that pass by on a Sunday morning? Imagine. Imagine, what if we started a sewing cafe and just got to know a bunch of people and saw what God did? Imagine. Imagine if we just knocked on a door full of young people and said, hey, can we help you celebrate Christmas this year? Imagine if we said, how can we just get connected with some of these families that we know and love and we'll see where God takes us? Imagine, imagine, imagine. You see, we might only be ankle deep. We might not even be ankle deep. We might be in a little trickle. But in the little trickle, as God's life begins to flow, do you know what happens to me because of 2013? Because I've stood in a trickle, I can believe that next year I might stand ankle deep. And because we have stood in a trickle as a church, I can believe next year we might be a little higher. And then one day, a little higher, one day, and then it'll get to the waist, up to the waist, and God's really moving. Way, come on, yeah, that's what, I mean, it's what we're longing for, isn't it? It's what we're longing for, for God to break out in a, in a way that changes lives so fast, like a river, a momentum that you cannot stop. I don't think I've got that as one of my points, but it's a jolly good one. A river that's so wide that it will just flow. And there will come a day when God's Spirit will just flow. We won't even be able to stop it if we want to. And we don't want to. Bring it on. Bring it on. Whew, starts with a trickle. Um, yeah. Notice, though, where it goes. And this is where it gets a bit hard, or very hard, and it's where we naturally want to just climb onto the bank and let the river pass. You see, the life of God, the river heads towards the desert. It went east towards Arabah, which was the desert place. God's life, it shouldn't have, geologically, it should have gone the other way. But it went to, God's life always goes to the desert place, to the lonely the lost, the hurting, the bereaved, the downtrodden, the disappointed, the marginalized, the poor, the sick, the guilty, the spiritually bankrupt, the emotionally crushed, you name it, the life of God will seek out these places and go to those people. That's what it's about. And think with me for a moment. It's nothing more than what Jesus said, look, I've come to seek and save what's lost. 
I've come for the desert places and for the people living in desert-like lives. I've come for people that are dry and weary and worn out. I've come for people that haven't got it all together. I've come for people that are sick and hurting and disorientated and don't know which way's up in this world. I've come for those people to seek and save that which is lost. And that's the paradox. The greater the desert, the more of God's life can be experienced. By the end of Ezekiel 47, the trickle has become a mighty river, but that mighty river is in the desert. Where do you want to be? You can be with the trickle in the sanctuary, or you can be in the desert with the overflowing abundance of the living God. And that was the challenge that the Lord was setting out to the people through Ezekiel's vision, that we are still working out today. And there in the desert, the life of God brings abundant life. We're living creatures. We'll live there in the desert. Why? Because the river flows. There'll be large numbers of fish. Hmm, someone else talked about fish, didn't they? Because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. A life that changes everything. I love what Julie said last week about it's not just our individual lives that get changed when Jesus' kingdom comes, but everything gets sorted out. Upside down, inside out. The whole social, economic, relational order gets turned on its head when God's kingdom comes in its fullness. Which of course again is what Jesus said. The thief comes and kills and destroys, but I've come that you might have life. But remember this. The life of God needs loads of fishermen. Notice what's along the river. Fishermen will stand along the shore. Now, I tell you, fishing is dead boring. If you're, if you fish, then apologies for that. This, this image totally breaks down for me at that point because fishing's dead boring. But Jesus' fishing is the most amazingly exciting adventure uh, I've ever come across uh, in, in this life. Loads of fishermen right along the bank, all the way from Engedi to Englaim. Fishermen all along. Fishers of men. It's the calling of our lives. Don't forget. Don't forget. Don't misunderstand me. The river, the life of God, still needs a sanctuary. Notice how in verse 12 it comes back, just as a reminder, every month they'll bear fruit. <laughs> every month they'll bear fruit. Every, every month people will get rescued and saved and healed and forgiven because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. We will gather and out of our gatherings will be a mighty river that flows to all kinds of communities and all kinds of places as we stand and line up along this river that God is pouring forth from this place. It's not that we don't need the sanctuary. We need the sanctuary. It's where it all begins. It's where it all starts. But we can't just stay here if we want more than a trickle. And so I want to ask you the same question. It was the same question that halfway through the Spirit of God asked Ezekiel. So picture the scene. God's giving Ezekiel this massive picture, all kinds of things going on, and the Spirit of God just stops and says right in the middle of it, Son of man, Ezekiel, do you see this? Not do you see it, just physically, literally with your eyes, but do you see it? Do you understand? Do you know this? Do you, can, you, can you conceive? Do you understand what this is all 
about. And I'll say to you, people of God, today, do we understand what God's saying to us in these moments? Do we see what God is doing? Does it thrill our hearts? Do we long to discover our place along the river? Do we long to be in waters that are washing over our heads? Do we long for a river to flow that will become unstoppable and will go into the most desert of places? And there in the desert, everything will live. What would it mean to be ankle deep for you next year? What would that mean? What would it mean? What would it mean for you to head more deliberately to the desert? What would that mean for you? What does it mean for us next year to be ankle deep? What does it mean next year for us to to penetrate deeper into the desert places that are in our own lives and all around us? Do you know something? We're going to end where we began however many weeks ago, 12 weeks or so ago. He is sovereign over us. And he turned up in Babylon, in Ishtar's house, with wheels, rims that are high and awesome. That's the best verse in the Bible. Rims that are high and awesome, which effectively says God can show up where he likes and he can do what he wants. And he's looking for a people that will say, God, will you show up here? And will you do everything you want? Sovereign over us, working in our waiting. Working in us while we seek him. Working in us in our longing. When we go through valleys and desert places ourselves, he's working even there for our good. His plans are still to prosper. He's not forgotten us. He's with us in the fire and the flood. Faithful forever, perfect in love. He's sovereign over us. Come on, let's stand.